Our scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. We've come to the last sermon uh, in this uh, series that we've run through the entire season. And what we've been talking about is what it means to be a Christian. And we said that Christianity is, was a movement in the earliest days a movement not of subversion, not of might, breaking people down, but really a movement of conversion. Despite the fact that it was born into a culture that was very hostile, very resistant to its claims, just as it is today. And that's really what the book of Acts is about. The book of Acts is about how Christianity was born into a culture that was hostile and resistant to its claims, and yet it spread so powerfully and so rapidly, it changed the society so quickly, so powerfully, so rapidly, that it changed the society. When you read books like The Rise of Christianity by Robert Stark, it's actually a scholarly, secular book. It talks about the rapid growth of Christianity in a time when it was virtually impossible for a movement like that to spread. So when Christianity was most post potent, it was added People grew through conversion. Lives were transforming. Lifestyles were changing. In this passage, we see the conversion of the Ethiopian. It teaches us three things about how this conversion actually happens. How does it happen? Conversion, becoming a Christian, has to be an upward change, an outward change, and an inward change. Upward, outward, inward. Very pedantic, very simple. We're going to go into this. First, Christianity is an upward change. Conversion needs the Spirit of God, an upward agent who produces change, who produces conversion, who regenerates the heart. The first four verses of this text are very specific. What you see here in verses 26 through 29, you see that the Spirit 
is divinely directing Philip. There's an instruction coming to Philip. There's instruction coming to the apostles. In verse 26, go south to the desert road to Gaza. Verse 29, go to the chariot. The chariot is moving. I want you to stay near the chariot. Philip is literally running up to the chariot. The chariot is moving. He's literally running beside the chariot. The Spirit told him to do this. He's saying, I see you're reading something. Yes, I'm reading something. He's literally running alongside him. By the way, in ancient novels, in ancient texts, you would never, you would never make up this kind of story. You would never sell. A fiction like this would never sell in those days. It's too boring. It's too dull. If you read, if you read ancient literature, ancient literature, ancient texts that are fictional only highlight the action reel, the highlight reel. So a conversation like this would be too boring to purchase, too dull to, to highlight. Luke, the author, is not writing fiction. The reason why he's including this is because it happened. The reason why he's including this is because it's real. It's news. And so here we have, uh, and it teaches us that the Spirit produces every aspect of conversion. The Spirit is involved in every aspect of regeneration of the heart. Why does this happen? Jesus Christ, at the end of the book of Matthew, we see the narrative of the Great Commission. He says, I want you to go to the ends of the earth, all nations. He's saying, I want my message of salvation through the grace of God to spread through all peoples, all nations. It's not just for you. It's not just for you. Jesus commands, and yet God has to constantly, he says, there I am with you to the very end of the age. That's what he says in the Great Commission. And I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is commanding us, and yet God has to constantly move us. He is present with us as he's moving Philip. Jesus Christ commissions, now the Spirit of God is directing. The Spirit of God is moving. Philip would never have done this on his own. And think about this. It's an Ethiopian man doing at his own business in a chariot that's already moving and going back home. Philip, running up to this chariot and talking to this man, he would never have done this on his own. To catch up to this chariot, to talk to a stranger, why did he do it? He did it because he was compelled by God. The Spirit moved him. The Spirit reminded him. He didn't do this against God's command. He did it in line with Christ's command. Now, what produced this conversion? It's the Spirit of God. And if you notice, what you see here is the gospel transcends all racial boundaries. The gospel transcends all ethnic boundaries. The gospel transcends all language boundaries. And that should be a comfort for all of us because the Spirit's active work, it should be a comfort to all of us. Why? God is so mindful. God is so planned out. We have a lot of type A urban young professionals here you like to be planned out you like to be strategic you like to be thought through in your planning god is so mindful more mindful than you god is so strategic more strategic than you god is so planned out his sovereign administration of grace is so planned out and his work is so powerful that in that exact moment as Philip is, is there, is present, he's brought there, there's a chariot that's moving. He's running up to the chariot just as this man is reading this text and this conversation, this dialogue, planned by God, his sovereign administration of grace. Do you see that? What this shows is the Spirit is so powerful, it has effect. No one is beyond God's reach. John chapter 6, he says, No man comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father except the Son of Man draws him. You know what that means? Now, we think of that, we say, oh, how nice. 
the Son of Man is to draw this man, usher him towards the Father. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that word that the Son of Man draws him, that word draw is, is the Greek word uh, that, that likens you to a prisoner who's chained and is clinging to his cell. And you have to literally draw him out. You have to pull him out. He says, no one comes to the Father unless the Son of Man draws him, pulls him, releases him, sets him free from that grip. Because of this, the Spirit desires for all social barriers to be overcome. Because of this, it is a comfort to us. You know why? This is the end of bigotry. This marks the end of chauvinism. This marks the end of oppression. And you you know why? It's because it's the end of pride. It's the end of self-justification. It's the end of jealousy. It's the end of comparing ourselves to another person to separate us from another gender or another race, another ethnic or language group. You see that? If we're looking down at other cultures, if we're looking down at other ethnic groups, if you're looking down at other class, people in other socioeconomic classes, you're going against the Spirit of God. That's what it's saying here. Why do we do this? Why do we do that? We do that because our self-worth is so based on something about us that we believe is better than somebody else. And we do that at a cultural level. Every culture has gifts. Every culture has merits. Every culture has flaws. Every culture has brokenness, you see. The gospel, the Spirit of God is apart from these things. The Spirit comes to you regardless of your pedigree. The Spirit comes to you regardless of your credentials. The Spirit comes into your ego, overcomes your ego, pulls you beyond your ego so you can see your brokenness and your failure and your flaws. And when that that happens, you start to realize we're all on the same plane. We're all on the same plane. What separates you from another person? What separates you as a believer from a person who is not a believer? Really, there's only one thing. It is the grace of God, the Spirit of God. That's it. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. Do you see that? If you get the gospel, you would consciously be compelled. You would consciously be compelled to use the gospel, to see the gospel, to admit, to admit your heart, your heart of self-justification, to undermine your own heart, And what that does, when you start to remove the self-justification, the blame shifting, the comparisons, the jealousy from your own heart, what happens is your heart becomes undermined. That tendency of the heart to desire to remain with people who are just like you. And what happens when you're set free from that, you start to run to other people. Because you know the Spirit of God is in this. compels you. The reason why you know that is because all cultures are broken. All cultures need grace. All cultures need the grace of God. You start to realize the Spirit of God works just as well in one culture as it would in another. God is the producer of conversion in his own people. God is everywhere. His presence is everywhere. So you must practice the grace of God anywhere. Do you see that? And that's going to lead us to widen our focal lens You know what a focal lens is? You tend to telephoto lens, you tend to hone in on something. You tend to hone in one type of people, people in your office, people in your class, your educational status. You see that? Your own ethnic group. 
The Spirit of God causes us to widen that focal lens. And that's the church. That's the beauty of the church. D.A. Carson, famous theologian, he says that the church is made of natural enemies. People who would normally be at odds with each other, the Spirit of God draws us together because we've widened our focal lens. I'm going to tell you just a, a quick, I don't like to tell a lot of stories about myself up at the pulpit because it draws people into just my story. But I, I'll share with you this story, just a, a brief illustration. Um, for, I, I'm a very straight-laced type A personality. Probably not too atypical for many of you. I'm a planner. I like to be, I don't mind being spontaneous, but I like to plan. I like to strategize. That's me. And, and in that, I like order. I'm obsessed with order. I'm obsessed with order to, to a flaw. And I like to plan out every little detail. You know what is the single greatest impact to someone like that? The single greatest risk? Children. Children impact that. Children come in and just naturally mess things up. If you have a nice, clean office, my nephew comes in and he just messes things up. Right? So you know what God called me to do? I run a camp for children. I run a, I've run a, my first stint in ministry has been to run a camp for children ever since I was in my teens, going in for the last 30 years of my life. And so in hot weather, out in the, the, this rustic cabin, I have to sit with 12 to 14 children for two weeks, overnight camp. I, every day, meal after meal, night after night, you're with children just running amok, crazy. The Spirit of God, what would cause a person who is type A and obsessed with order? I don't have any children. Right? It's actually a, a, a hard part of my life. But to, to embrace, once you start to get children, once you start to see children, and I've been doing this for 30 years, you start to love children, know children, want children. I'm blessed with that. Where is the Spirit of God taking you? Where is the Spirit of God compelling you? God is the producer of conversion in his people, and he will use unlikely candidates like me. He will use unlikely candidates like you to bring about his conversion and his grace everywhere. So practice his grace anywhere. Do you see that? Now, that's the first point. The second point is that conversion is an outward experience. Conversion takes place in the context of relationships. Here is an Ethiopian, completely different ethnic minority compared to where he was at that time in Jerusalem. And this Ethiopian is talking to, to Philip, and he asks him three questions. And all three of those questions tells us that the, how the Spirit uses relationships, the context of relationships, powerful agent to bring about conversion. Verse 31, how can I, he says, how can I understand this? How can I unless someone explains it to me? Philip says, do you know what you're reading? He says, how can I know unless someone explains it to me? Verse 34, tell me please. Who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Verse 36, here is water. Here is water. I just said that like a Philadelphian. Here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? The first question, in verse 27, this question is coming. We've got to understand the context. This question is coming from an important official who's in charge of the treasury in Ethiopia. He is the secretary of, uh, of treasury in, in Ethiopia. This person was the minister of finance. He's, a, he's in a position of power. 
He's got status. He reported directly to the queen of Ethiopia. He's a literate and educated man in an illiterate society, in an oral culture. He's reading from the book of Isaiah. That book of Isaiah, it doesn't come easy today. We just open up a book, you get it online. In those days, it was written out in scrolls. And he was reading from his own, which means it was expensive. This man is wealthy. He's literate, he's educated, he's got status, he's got power, he's got influence, and he's wealthy, but he's confused. He's confused about what he's reading. And at that moment, at that moment in time, when he's he's reading from the scrolls of Isaiah chapter 53... Philip runs alongside the chariot. He asks him, do you need help with what you're reading? This Ethiopian, he's got status. I've got status. Do you see me? I own this chariot. I've come from afar. I'm wealthy. Can't you see I'm a man of dignity? I'm a, I'm a dignified individual. He could have easily said, I-, I got this. I'll get it on my own. I'm an educated man. I'm a wealthy man. I can have somebody teach me. I'm self-sufficient. But instead... The Ethiopian admits his ignorance. He's confused. He asks for help. Friends, this should speak to us. This should speak to us. This is a wealthy, educated, literate, pedigreed individual. Blessed in all worldly credentials. Does that remind you of somebody? That's you. Blessed in every worldly credential. And yet... Where is he looking for guidance? What is he seeking for help? He's looking to the word of God and he's asking for help. That should speak to us. Verse 31, he lets Philip into the chariot. Don't just come to church. Don't just come to church and not let anyone in. Plug in. You know what that means? Worship is necessary. What we do here on Sundays is necessary. It is sacred but it's not sufficient. Plug into community. Plug into community. Very few people come to faith and wisdom and life change on their own. If you try it on your own, your life's not going to change. Have you ever tried changing on your own? We do that every year. At the end of the year, we do that all the time. Has your life changed drastically or significantly? Resolutions will not change your life. You need community deep-rooted community in your life. That's the context for change. You need to be willing to admit that there are things beyond your pedigree, that there are things beyond your family, there are things that your education has not taught you, there are things that go beyond what money your wealth can buy you, there are things that go beyond your status that your status can't acquire, there are things that your position cannot afford. In verse 31, this wealthy, educated powerful man says, how can I understand this unless someone explains it to me? Verse 34, tell me please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And Philip starts to explain. In both cases, we see sincere inquiry, genuine inquiry. In verse 36, we see the last question, why shouldn't I be baptized here? Why didn't he just say, Philip, thank you, I'm going to drop you off here. Let me drop you off where you need to go. I want God to come into my life. Now it's between me and him. Why didn't he just say that? I get it now. Don't go too far. Don't get into my personal life. That's between God and me. Let me just drop you off here. You did your thing. Thank you. Why did he see ask? There's water right here. Baptize me. 
What he's saying is, validate me. You see me, you've shared with me, you've heard from me. Validate me. Assess me. Evaluate me. He says, you're my friend now. I trust what you're saying. You got me. Validate me now. Baptize me. Baptism, for those who may not know what baptism is, it's a communal act. The very nature of baptism is you need somebody else to administer it. Somebody else has to conduct it. Why? Because we need somebody else to interpret our experience. It's not enough to say I've had a spiritual experience. It's not enough to say I've had an emotional spiritual experience. You need somebody to hear you and say, yes, I've heard what you're saying. I see your experience. I hear your experience. I'm evaluating and assessing your experience. I'm, interp- I'm helping you interpret your experience. Do you see that? We need someone to help us interpret this experience that we have. When a baby is born, when a baby is born, when is that baby actually alive? Is that baby born alive when he comes out of the womb? No. Something happened months prior. Something happened a while back. And that baby is alive. But the thing is, then this process of birth, nobody sits around and celebrates the conception. Right? Because most of us don't know when that actually happened. But when that baby comes out of the womb, everybody around is celebrating. Why? Because when that baby comes out, he's the only one crying in the room. He's the only one crying. He's wailing, you know. But that sign of wailing is what? Everybody's standing around and celebrating because they are validating that the baby is alive. That's the celebration. That's baptism. That's what baptism is. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your growth in Jesus Christ, it always happens in the context of community. If you think you're a product of your choice coming to God on your own, it's never going to change you. If you think that you coming here and being moved by God is an act on your own, it's not going to change you. We are the product of the Spirit. That's the first point, right? The Spirit of God working through us, in us, but we are the product of the Spirit working through the context of community, deep-rooted relationships in our lives. That's what changes us. That's what that means. So we have... An upward change, the spirit, the generator, the producer of conversion. We have the outward change, which is deep relationships that work in us, that work through us. Lastly, conversion is inward. What actually causes the conversion? The Ethiopian, he's he's reading. He's reading from uh, a particular text, Isaiah chapter 53. And he's reading from verses, you know, you, you, you surmise that he's got to the point of verses 7 to 8 because that's what's quoted. But you, get, you assume that he's been reading the entire chapter when Philip caught up to him. And this timing was perfect for Philip to catch him. And as Philip starts to explain and reinterpret this text, it all makes sense to this Ethiopian. This becomes the climactic period, the climactic, the pivotal moment of his life. Now why? Because we've already asserted, we've already submitted that this man was powerful. This man is wealthy. This man is educated. This man is, he's made it to the top. But he paid a tremendous price to get there. Tremendous price to get there. You see, if you're a commoner 
in the ancient times, and you make it to the top, in order to reside among female royalty, such as the queen, you had to make some sacrifices. They would have to castrate you. You would have to become a eunuch. And so by becoming castrated, you're sacrificing for the sake of your career. You are paying the price, literally with your body. Blood, sweat, and tears, you're paying the price. You're sacrificing any future family that you could have. You're sacrificing any future children that you will have. You're sacrificing your legacy. You are sacrificing your body. Now, you may say, wow, that is disgusting. That is inhumane. I can't believe that there, there was such a time as that. This is appalling. This is offensive. Really? It shouldn't surprise you. That shouldn't surprise us. Look at Philadelphia. Ever walk around the financial district of Philadelphia? It is impossible to develop any major relationship with anybody, build any intimacy with anybody without paying the price without paying any type of price. It's hard to rise up the corporate ladder without paying a price for your work. From the moment you begin your education, you're paying a price. Every promotion that we're working for, we're paying a price. Every job change incurs a cost. Every business that you start up, you are paying the price with your family and your children and your body. This Ethiopian, he makes it to the top. But spiritually, he's empty. And so he's empty, and he's searching, and he's reading, and he's longing. And this is, he's searching and reading. He's educated. He's doing his research. He travels hundreds of miles away from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. And really what's happening here in this context, he's on his way back. But he's coming from Jerusalem. He was going to enter into Jerusalem to worship. He left his job. He travels far. He's weathered the elements to worship in Jerusalem. He's ignored the temples and the religions, the faiths of his own people. Today, we don't go into temples to worship. Today, we don't go into, uh, we don't uh, physically hold idols in our homes. But those idols of stone and silver and bronze and gold have been traded in for the idol of wealth and power and sex. And we're still paying a price. We're still paying homage to these idols. He ignored his temples. He ignored his religions and the other faiths of his own people to worship the God of the Bible. And so he's arrived at Jerusalem. He's tired, spiritually fatigued, struggling with his work struggling with his business. A lot of us are tired and struggling with work and struggling with our business. This person has made his money, but the dream that was supposed to be his career was insufficient, and so he's empty, and he's disillusioned, and he's overworked, and he's burdened, and he's lonely, and he's made it to the top, and it's lonely. It's a lot like us. He's paid a price. He's paid, a, he's paid a huge price. The Ethiopian, he finally gets to Jerusalem only to realize that eunuchs are not allowed to enter. The law forbids eunuchs to enter. People who have been sexually mutilated cannot enter. He came all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, came all the way because he read, he heard, and now he can't enter into the temple. He's got no access, and there's nothing he can do about it. 
This man is broken irreversibly. He's broken. He sacrificed his body. And so now he's returning back to Ethiopia rejected. This man is sacrificed to the wrong gods of wealth and power and status. Does that sound familiar to us? He's in spiritual turmoil. He's, he's got the sense of brokenness that he can't reverse, uncleanness that he can't reverse. He's lost from not being able to enter the temple. He's lost a sense of dignity in his life. He's wealthy, he's educated, he's arrived, and yet when he's arrived to Jerusalem, there's no access. The doors have been closed to him. And so he's returning from his pilgrimage, back in his chariot, and he's pouring through Isaiah. He's pouring through Isaiah. And he gets to this part of Isaiah, I'm going to read. It's printed in your call to worship. He reads, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Now in your call to worship, he talks about a promise. He's reading through this promise. In Isaiah chapter 56, he reads this promise. He's pouring through the scrolls. And he says, Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. What he's saying here is that I've read here that there is access. That God will not exclude me. He says, Let not... Let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. He says, I am a dry tree. I am empty. I've sacrificed my body. I don't have to complain about that anymore. Verse 4, for this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, he came to worship, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple. That's why he came to the temple. Within my temple and its walls, a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. He says, you see, I've been cut off. I've been cut permanently. And to people like me, God promised a name within his temple walls, a name that is everlasting. That's why I'm here. I've been longing, I've been searching, I'm spiritually dry. I've come to the temple to enter in because I'm a dry tree, you see. And God has promised me access. God has promised me a name that is better than a son. I came, I worked, I sacrificed for a name, and I still have no name. You see, I'm still dry. In an age when the most important thing are your descendants, how can I have a better name? Because I, no I can't have any more descendants. I'm cut off, you see. In an age when children, children are so important, to prolong your legacy, prolong your name. He says, I can't have children. How can I have an even better name? He says, how can I understand this unless someone explains it to me? He come, comes across Isaiah 53. He gets to verse 7 and 8. We just read verse 7 and 8. And, and that's what he was actually reading. And the eunuch is asking, I became a eunuch to gain access to royalty. I ascended the heights. I started out low, became a eunuch, and I went to the top. And I did it through sacrifice. Poured out my body. Poured out my blood. 
Tell me, who is this suffering servant who was already at the top, who poured himself out voluntarily to become a spiritual eunuch, who was at the top and yet descended the depths and voluntarily was cut off, cut off from the land of the living? Who became this spiritual eunuch as my substitute? And as he's reading this, Philip arrives. Hey, you need help understanding this? God is using that moment. That's God on the move. The eunuch asks him, is Isaiah writing about himself or is he writing about someone else? Who's the prophet talking about? And Philip explains about Jesus. Let me sit with you. Sin is substituting ourselves for God. That's us working to gain glory on our own. That's us paying a price to get to the top on our own. Because at the end, we want access. If I can just make enough, if I can just study enough, if I can just have enough status, then I will be approved. Then I will be acceptable. Some of us, we don't feel beautiful on the outside. So you know what we do? We just pour ourselves into our work. Because if I'm excellent there, then I will be acceptable another way, you see? Then I will be enough. Then I will have access, you see? That's us. Sin is substituting ourselves to get the access that only God can give for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for us. Philip explains the narrative of the gospel, Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God came and paid our penalty. Jesus Christ was cut off, spiritually cut off from the land of the living, He became a spiritual eunuch so that we can have true access, so that we can be made whole, so that we can be restored. That's the promise, you see, in Isaiah 56, our call to worship. On the cross, Jesus Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I'm cut off. I've been forsaken. I'm cut off. I've lost access. Why? So that you could have access. I've lost the glory of God so you could have the glory of God. I've been cut off so you could be made whole. My body has been ripped apart. My body has been torn apart. Why? So you could be made complete in him. My soul has been ripped apart. Because Jesus Christ was cut off, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one person, ripped apart on the cross. Why? So that we could be made whole and we could be united to Christ. So when he is risen, We rise with him, you see. Jesus Christ on the cross, this eunuch says, I'm unclean, I'm mutilated, I don't have access. Jesus Christ says, I've become unclean. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ became sin. Jesus Christ became unclean. Jesus Christ was mutilated. Jesus Christ was forsaken and cut off. Why? So that we can become accepted. There's the validation you need. There's the access you need. There's the union we need. Plunge your broken self into the grace of Jesus Christ who bled on the cross, was mutilated on the cross, cut off on the cross, cosmically, 
for you. And let that truth wash you clean and make you whole. This is what changes you. Access. You know what access means? You know why we desperately need access? Because it makes us whole. You know why we desperately need access? Because access means security. You go into your house, it trips the alarm, you punch in that code, that's access. You can stay. That means you can stay. That's security, you see? Access means inclusion. Access means you're in, you see? And when you're in the Father through Jesus Christ, that means you are in, in the most in you could ever be. That's what we're looking for. Anything apart from that is sin. We're empty, you see. Access means real community. In Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image. What he's saying is, we have a great community, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's widen that circle. Let's widen that community, you see. Access means love. Access means peace. Access means you have a new name. That means access means you're you're forgiven. You are like a son, a child, a son. You You know what makes a son? A son can mess up. Your child can mess up, but he'll never be kicked out. And as a result, access means joy. Joy. Everlasting joy. You know, knowledge is not going to change you. Just reading a scroll is not going to change you. Knowledge is insufficient. You need it, but it's insufficient. Knowledge is not going to bring you joy, you see. You know what's going to change you? Not being hammered into change. You read the Bible, and a lot of us, we read the Bible, and it's a manual. So I need to be like this. You see, that's never going to change you. That's going to hammer you, but it's not going to change you. Subversion, that's subversion. You know what changes you? You know what converts you? The Spirit of God bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The King who became a servant so that we who are servants can become kings. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, you are a royal priesthood. You know what that means? You are a king and you are a priest. A priest can enter in. You are king and you are in. You see, that's what that means. Melted into the grace of God. That's conversion. That's going to bring joy. Baptism is letting the waves of God's grace wash over you with love. You know what's an immediate sign of change? What's an immediate sign of change? Here's a middle-aged, straight-laced, lawful Jewish man who takes on a sexually mutilated black man and calls him brother. You see? takes him to the water, and washes him clean. What are the fingerprints of the Spirit of God bringing the gospel into your life? What is God doing in your mutilation, the mutilation of the heart, the brokenness of the heart? What is God doing in your brokenness? Some of us feel excluded. What is God doing in that? Some of us feel just lost. Some of us have lost a lot of things. What is God doing in that? What is God doing in your ugliness? What is God doing in your feelings of rejection to lead you to the waters of grace? Because God is up to something, and he's up to something amazing, amazing grace. Who is God using to lead you there? Ask. Do you have the humility to ask? Do you have the courage to ask? 
Do you have the courage to seek? I pray you do. Let's pray.